From FingerLakes1.com, this is the Debrief Podcast. I'm Josh Durso, and this is episode 62. It's Friday, February 21st, and I'm joined in studio by Ted Baker of Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. Ted, it's just you and me this week. It's a quiet Good morning. studio. So how many of the 62 have I been on? I, 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 15, <laughs> 15 maybe. I think we're in that area. Sounds about right. Um, Man, there's been a lot going on uh, in the last couple weeks. Uh, so we kind of have a, a mixed bag of a show this week. Um, we're going to cover a few topics that have been po- that have popped up in the news uh, in the last uh, ten days or so. Uh, a couple of them Ted and I talked about this morning on his show, uh, and then we are going to basically dedicate the rest of the show to just answering all of the questions that we have been getting um, on Facebook and Twitter, and a few emailed also. Um, over the last uh, couple weeks. But my first question for you, Ted, is did you watch the debate? No, I don't. I don't stay up very late to begin with. And I, I hate this format. It's just, I don't know why these candidates don't just revolt and say, we're not going to do this anymore. Do it, they? It's, like, does it matter? Like, to me, that's, that's my thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm watching and I'm listening, and most of the time I'm just listening, and it's passively on in the background. And you get these short little, like, 10 or 15-second sparring sessions, and then it's on to the next topic. And I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, what is this? who's being convinced? Like, who's, who's being moved from one camp to the next? I don't think anybody is. There was a poll, I think it was in New Hampshire, that a distressingly high percentage of the voters decided pretty much as they drove to the polls from what it sounded like. I mean, I mean, a, a huge amount were undecided right up to the day that they voted. And, and to me, that sort of, and the flip side of that is the people who aren't undecided up until the, sort of the last minute, they are decided from the first minute of the, you know, it's like listening to the, and, and I follow a pretty diverse background of folks on, on Twitter, and I kind of take a, a pulse from the things that I see there. And it's interesting, like, the people who have been, you know, yelling and screaming that Bernie Sanders is the guy a year ago are still the same people that are doing it today. And it doesn't really seem like even the people who have, um, the candidates who have left the race those supporters are still pretty well aligned with those people. And it just seems to serve this, this no, it doesn't really seem to have a good, a good purpose. It feels like uh, we talked on our show the other day about sort of the circular nature of all this, which is the media focuses on who's the front runner and it's all the horse race coverage. And then we have a primary or a caucus, we get the results and whoever wins that caucus now is vaulted to the top. And then polls come out a few days later that show this person rising in the polls. Well, of course they're rising in the polls because you, the news media, just told everybody that this is the new frontrunner. I, I, I read a really good article on a blog the other day that was talking about how, for example, let's say instead of Iowa, then New Hampshire, let's say South Carolina had been first. Well, Joe Biden is the leader in South Carolina, will probably win by a pretty healthy margin. How much different would the whole race be and the coverage be if South Carolina had gone first, Biden had won, now Biden's the front runner, the media's talking about Biden, Biden goes up in the polls. I mean, we, we just really need a better way than this to pick a president. It's just not, or to pick a nominee. It's not a good way, and I blame a lot of it on mainstream news media and all horse race coverage. 
And you went there, so I'll get this question out of the way. One of the questions that came up a few times um, while I was going through the collection of questions that we had received uh, was following the Iowa caucus and the disaster that was the Iowa caucus, um, the, the, the idea of are caucuses a good idea or are they a bad idea or is it finally time to do away with them and just, just go to traditional electoral processes and, and not get into this very – caucuses are a strange process. Like I think most people don't understand how they work. Um, and then for the folks who do understand how they work – I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many people there are who are really willing to sort of uh, dedicate the time and energy that it takes to participate in a caucus. In some of those cases, now obviously, if you're in New York, it makes no difference. Um, but like you said, Iowa or the states that go first, um, they they play a big role in shaping the way the rest of it goes. Right. I mean, we have candidates who are dropping out. You know, they've been candidates for a year and a half, and they're dropping out. At, well, I wrote a post on our website saying that the uh, Kansas City Chiefs should have just quit the Super Bowl because a minute and a half in, they'd run three plays and punted, and the 49ers were moving, and obviously it was over because the 49ers were the front runner. right? using a kind of a football analogy. Yeah. I have maybe what's a minority view about caucuses. I think that political parties are free to choose who their nominee will be any way they want. And, and frankly, that's the role that caucuses serve, is it allows the party power base to have a little bit more say. They're very anti-democratic. Mm -hmm. I mean, for people who don't know, a caucus is basically a several-hour, evening-long meeting. They're attended primarily by real political heads, for lack of a better term. I mean, it's not like a citizen... In a primary, you get in your car, you drive to the polling place. I mean, in my town, there's no line. I walk in, I vote, I get my sticker, and I'm out in two minutes. Yeah. A caucus, you got to stay there all night long. There's a round of voting. If the person you voted for is eliminated, now you got to stick around and vote for the next person. So, so now you're voting for someone that you didn't want in the first place. So who do I want a little bit less than the person I picked? It's it's a very anti-democratic system. Mm -hmm. I and, and I think by design. I think political parties want it that way so that they can control things. They, they can get the more centrist, electable, uh, fundable candidate. And it's interesting, too, because it starts to, it starts to uh, bring in the line of questioning, which is what are the parties? Like, what do the parties stand for? What, do they prim what are they primarily made up of? I, I feel like more and more people today... Uh, feel like they don't align very well with either of the two major parties, maybe a little more with some of the parties that are, you know, on the fringe or sort of secondary um, on secondary ballot lines. But like this, this whole idea that, you know, that the, the process, especially when you have a lot of candidates in the mix, the process that we have now, especially when you're going state to state with varying processes and procedures it doesn't. It doesn't bode well for actually getting the person who maybe has the best campaign, who maybe has the best ideas, who maybe is fundamentally the most popular person. Um, it just there's it, it creates all of these um, basically roadblocks that can screw up otherwise you know good campaigns and good candidates that would do a good job if given the opportunity. I think that's especially the case in the Democratic Party because in the Democratic Party you've got the 
pretty far left candidates like Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. He he wears the label of socialist with pride. I mean, Elizabeth Warren would break up the big banks, and, and you know, and those people like that scare the party power base because political power parties run on money, mm-hmm. and the the big businesses and the banks and and the interests, as they used to call them back in the day, aren't going to donate to a wild-eyed leftist kind of candidate. So the party officials would rather have, if if you polled the real power base in the Democratic Party, they would love to see Joe Biden be the nominee. But I don't think very many Democratic voters want that. I think Democratic voters are tired of getting what they see as republican light candidates. They get very centrist. You know, Joe Biden talking about how he's going to work across the aisles you know, with the Republican Party. Has he seen the Republican Party lately? Uh, I mean, they're not going to work with him. They're not going to work with anybody on the left. But is anyone... So my issue with this is, and this sort of goes back to the, do we want someone electable or do we want someone who represents what some people feel are the core values or views of the party? And my question is, is regardless of which outcome is reality, are we any more likely to see the Republicans working with that group or that group being interested in working with Republicans? Nobody's working with anybody unless we get a real fundamental change. I mean, that's just those battle lines have been drawn. So it's that's the double-edged sword of party politics. Yeah. A lot of Democratic voters would prefer a candidate farther to the left. The party power base doesn't want that. And so, and I mean, that's what happened. I think a big part of what happened in 2016 was Bernie Sanders supporters who were upset that they thought the process was unfairly tilted against him and in favor of Hillary Clinton. And I think a lot of those Bernie supporters either stayed home, yeah. voted Jill Stein, voted Trump as a protest vote, mm-hmm. and that was enough to tilt those two or three battleground states over to Donald Trump. And I, I'm afraid we may see the same thing here. Yeah. If Bernie Sanders doesn't win, I think a lot of his supporters are not going to line up behind the nominee. And so you ask yourself, do you want, if you can't get 100% of you want of what you want, do you settle for 80 or do yeah. you take zero? Yeah. I mean, if you're a Democrat and the Republicans elected, you're getting nothing of what you want. So wouldn't you rather have a candidate who maybe agrees with 50 or 60% of what you agree with rather than one who agrees with zero? Yeah, it's interesting. And clearly something that it's it's funny because it seems like there's a lot of focus on Super Tuesday and how important of a date that is. But in reality, I don't think we're going to be any closer to understanding what the outcome of this primary process is going to be then than we are now. Um, but let's talk about uh, one of the topics that we we chatted about on your show this morning. A company called Tully Environmental has proposed a sewer sludge processing and composting facility on a piece of property along Route 89 in Butler in Wayne County. Uh, there has been a swell of opposition, uh, and even as you pointed out this morning, a change.org petition as well that has thousands of signatures already. Um, and yet, if you go by the, the sort of official statements that have that have come out from uh, elected folks in Wayne County, um, around in, I should say, in the town of Butler and sort of around Wayne County. It seems like they're open to the idea, even though there is this large-scale opposition, 
having had some had some time to sort of sit back and and watch this develop um what are you thinking and and what are you seeing um from this compared to say uh maybe the the landfill debate which always uh reignites every few months in Ontario County and Seneca County well, a few points. The first one is I think that there's a very reflexive, I don't know if I want to say knee-jerk reaction in the Finger Lakes to anything to do with trash before people even know what it is. If it's trash from New York City, we don't want it. We don't want to hear about it. But I always ask the question, do you have a garbage can in your house? Okay, well, so what are we going to do? We have trash. It has to go somewhere. Uh, you can't bury it in the streets of New York City. I mean, big cities have to send their trash somewhere where there's open space or facility to do something about it. Now, I see, you know, to hear the company tell it, they're going to turn all this trash into magic compost that's going to make your tomatoes grow better. But there was the one, and I uh, remind me who it was, the one local official, uh, I think uh, it was in your story, posted on Facebook that this stuff contains all sorts of other poisons and things that they're not telling us about. So... I think we need to have more, you know, if Jackie were here, she'd say more fact-based debates on these kind of things rather than just emotional reaction. Um, But then the larger issue is how are we going to change the way that we live so we don't have so much of this trash to begin with? And when AOC came out with her idea of the Green New Deal addressing some of these issues... It was mostly immediately ridiculed by the political right and by a lot of the mainstream media. Oh, she wants to ban planes. She wants to ban cows. No, they want to address these issues. It's, it's, we keep going back in these discussions to the larger issues. There's a larger issue about the way that we live, that we burn fossil fuels. We still have lots and lots of unnecessary packaging on the products that we buy. So that's the discussion we need to have. How do we reduce the amount of waste we generate so that we don't necessarily have to drive truckloads of it or train loads of it to the Finger Lakes? I think that's the, to me, that's the interesting part of this, this particular proposal because it steps away from the, the traditional municipal solid waste that we see in our landfills being trucked through the region sort of in mass now. Um, and it's, it's the it's how blunt the proposal sounds, right? Like sewer sludge. That is, th- those are two words that, um, if if you are all about tourism, if you are all about the natural environment, uh, there aren't many people who are going to want to hear that sewer sludge is coming right. by any means from New York City up to um, the, the Finger Lakes. My my curiosity is always, and and we hear this constantly from elected officials they're saying they're just doing we we're just doing uh, the work of the people we are just doing we can now say with confidence that we live in a region that is pretty opposed to this kind of industry this kind of stuff um, if you're doing the work of the people and you're you're following the pulse of the people yes they want lower taxes yes they want a, a community that has jobs and all all of the like um but when you're talking about these sort of hot button proposals, that's not what people want. People don't want their community to to become this. If nothing else, this, think about it this way. This is the the thing that I thought about after we talked this morning. 
if nothing else, this is going to really divide the town of Butler, and it is going to expand this this clash between people who are who argue they're uh, basically advocating for the environment against those who say they're advocating for the economy. And it doesn't do anything, even if the proposal moves forward, to better either of those. You're talking about a few few jobs when all is said and done, and you're talking about something that in theory, if not known now, could eventually have a negative impact on the environment. So, you know, I think we need to kind of keep all of these things in, in perspective. And the other thing, when I when I said it this morning, I, I really like thought long and hard afterwards, but these small communities that are sort of ripe for the picking when it comes to uh, larger companies, when a, when a company like this comes in and says, you know, we want to do this economic development project in your backyard, um, no matter what it is, these towns, these villages, especially the small ones, need to be prepared. They need to be ready to deal with the process that follows. And, you know, like right now, I think a lot of the pulse seems to be that a lot of folks who are weary of this project look at what elected officials in Butler right now are saying, and, and they're reacting by saying, you know, these people are saying, we're going to let the process play out. We'll see what they they have to say, and they're going to answer our questions. And it feels very sort of hands-off when, when there are a lot of folks who, at the very least, want uh, elected officials and, and municipal government to be more hands-on with these proposals as they come into the fold. Well, another aspect of this, and, and it's a legitimate one, is is that one of the criticisms is that these types of facilities are almost always located in poor and or minority communities. In this case, I, I assume that Butler is probably a little bit poorer than Victor or Farmington. And so that tends to be where these places go. They don't get located next to the local assemblyman's house who lives in a little bit nicer neighborhood. So, so that's an aspect of it. There's also that very often we see the promises made by the companies of cleanliness, nothing could get, ever go wrong, doesn't match the actual fact. You know, what happens if this tank overflows or breaches? Are we going to have sewers? I mean, we've had that uh, with large-scale commercial hog operations around the country where they have these sewer lagoons impounding a million gallons of pig waste and there's a flood or a break and it winds up washing down main street yeah it's interesting because i i think the the disparity in the the socioeconomic makeup of a lot of these communities is is big like that's a big a big component of this um because you know at the end of the day if a proposal like this goes through and it adds an influx of of tax money and it adds an influx of a few jobs you know, the company can pat itself on the back and say, you know, we did this for this small community in upstate New York. Um, it, it's just one of those things. And there are two meetings uh, coming up, I believe, in March. I, I ran both the dates on the story on FingerLakes1.com, so you can check there. There's one in the first week of March and then another one in the middle of the month um, where they where local officials say that more questions will be answered. But you also bring up a really interesting <laughs> point about the disconnect between the attitudes of public officials and the attitudes of the residents. Uh, I lived in Texas in the mid-80s, and the area that I lived in had salt deposits below the earth, which could be hollowed out and used mm -hmm. to store things like, for example, nuclear waste. A company came in and made a proposal that they were going to store nuclear waste in these salt caverns, 
And the initial reaction from public officials was positive. And when it got to the public, an absolute bleep storm ensued. They, they wanted nothing to do with it. So I, I think we're seeing that here as well. The, the, you know, same thing with the incinerator mm-hmm. at the, the former depot property. The reaction always seems more positive from the business community, the elected officials, than it does from the rank-and-file citizens that have to live with the odor or the other problems that it creates. Yeah. Uh, so another one of the topics that we talked about this morning, uh, several schools in the region are missing out on heavy-duty funding. Uh, the Auburn City School District is missing approximately $6.4 million, which has resulted in upwards of 80 teaching cuts in recent years. Uh, Ian Phillips and Jim Shepard from the uh, Auburn Board of Education were on my show yesterday inside the FLX. That video is up online. Podcast is up on all streaming platforms. Um, what are your? We talked about it a little bit, but when you see these big numbers, um, what what are your thoughts on sort of the process and how a lot of these districts got here? And and how you have one district that's really fighting hard for it, but there are a lot of others who are still owed money aren't fighting nearly as hard for it. My big question with a lot of these kinds of topics is, where is the money going? How is it that we were able to afford to have all these programs when I went through schools in the 1960s and 70s, and why can't we now? Where where has the money gone that we can no longer afford to have you know music programs, and, and we get sports teams cut, and we get all these things cut. And then the second part of it is, because I go through this every year, I have uh, usually Trina Newton, the Geneva superintendent, and her business manager come on, and they explain the budget, and they, you know, uh, they can't directly advocate that you vote for it, but that's essentially what they're doing when they come on. And I'm always struck by the percentage of the budget that they have no control over whatsoever. It's around 80%. Right. So any cuts have to come from this other 20%. So there's There's a big structural problem there somewhere when you're forced to spend all this money and you have no say over it, and then if anything's going to be cut, you know, it has to be teachers. I mean, it's just, it seems pretty dumb that the first thing that you're going to cut is teachers and educational programs in a school. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, this has been something that, you know, they in... Auburn have been pushing for for at least a couple of years now um, with, with no results, you know, and it's not, not their fault at all. Um, but at this point, I don't really feel like they should expect anything out of New York State. Of course, New York State was supposed to have to have funded this, this gap, uh, but they haven't, and it doesn't really seem like despite the best efforts – and maybe the best intentions of, of those involved, it doesn't really seem like it's going to happen. You've got the states; the state has its own budget shortfall. Well, and this is where I can line up with conservatives who say the solution is don't take the money away in taxes in the first place. Let the local communities keep the money and spend it on their own schools. I mean, it's right. just, it's a terribly convoluted formula where we send our tax money to Albany and then we get some of it back, you know, there's just the whole school, again, we're, we're back to that larger issue again. We're arguing about one school district and their funding instead of this completely broken system that, that isn't working, it doesn't look like, for anybody. And that was one of the things. They, they really hammered on that point yesterday. Um, you know, the, the, 
the funding structure is broken. The folks who work in schools and administrators in schools across the state aren't happy, aren't satisfied with the the way funding sort of comes down from the state. But like you said, you you made a really good point. Like X amount of it, 80% of that funding is mandated. So the the spending has to follow a certain, you know, a certain procedure and, you know, it, to me the really telling part of our conversation I felt like was when uh Ian Phillips was talking about, you know, they've sort of they've gotten the the surface level response from lawmakers. Uh, Senator Helming has been really supportive of them, of their effort. Um, But lawmakers in general in Albany have said, well, you know, we can't vote to raise taxes because that's been one of the the proposals. One of the ideas to to fix this funding gap would be to tax the ultra wealthy, um, which a lot of people don't like. But Ian raised the point, he says, you know, you might not be raising taxes in Albany, but because you aren't equalizing our funding, we're going to have to raise taxes at the local level. So they're just, it's interesting, like, to frame it that way, where, you know, sure, Albany might not be raising taxes, but by not raising their own taxes in Albany and them owning it because of the things they're doing and the mandates they're creating, right. they're passing that response, they're passing the buck onto the, the local officials who then get punished for <laughs> raising taxes if they approach the, the property tax cap. And that, and that comes right from the top. The federal government forces states to do things and doesn't provide the funding. Mm-hmm. States force the local communities to do thing things and, and don't provide the funding. So it's just, it's such an entrenched, broken system. I don't know how you go about untangling it. I'm sure, you know, it's it's got to be frustrating for our local representatives around here, because especially the Republicans in the New York State Legislature, where what Republicans want is pretty much meaningless. I mean, it's a Democratic governor and Democratic legislature, and unless it's what they want, you can't even get your bill out of hearing uh, onto the floor. I mean, yeah. literally, if you're a Republican, we talked about that when we were talking about the assembly race to replace Brian Kolb is, do you vote for a Republican who can't do anything, or do you vote for a Democrat who might not agree with what you agree with, but has the ability to do something? And that's the interesting, I think that's going to be the interesting philosophical question for every voter in, for example, the 131st district is what what will actually be best for the district? Is it another representative who's going to try to sort of bust the status quo or is it going to be someone who's going to go into Albany and be able to have a seat at the table and maybe dip into the pot a little bit so that you know right. this district can get more than it has historically? It's interesting. Um, speaking of money, uh, we learned Thursday that uh, more money is going to Wayne County to to deal with this whole flooding issue. Uh, $4.5 million is going to be coming to Shoreline Communities in Wayne County. I believe that's going to be mostly spent in uh, the Great Sodus Bay area. Um, and then he hinted that there could be another million and a half. And then, of course, you've got the Ready Program from New York State that's dumping like $300 plus million or something to that effect in there. All this money is being spent. Um, but the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because I, I can't help but chuckle because we're, we're all of this money is being spent on this problem. And yet the experts right now in February seem to be saying that flooding this year is going to be worse than it was in 17, which was the historic high. So as we're going through these projects, are we guarding against... 2017 from happening again? Or are we guarding from 2022? 
And are we going to have to spend like $400 million every three years to, to shore us up on the new peak? Like, I hope this money, my, my, my hope is that this money is being spent to, you know, kind of like shore these communities up for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years so that this new normal, as the governor called it, um, you know, isn't just a normal for a year or two and we're back to square one again. Well, some of the money is reparations for the damage suffered in the last two rounds. Some of it is, like you said, infrastructure. But, I, you know, my analogy is they're putting a Band-Aid on last year's cut while somebody's sticking an axe in the back of your head this year. I mean, it, it's, again, here we go, but back to the bigger picture. Why is this water so high? The impression that I get at least the, the, the small businesses and the homeowners along Lake Ontario feel like the interests of the shippers and the people with the big money are being catered to over those of the people who own property on the shoreline. Yeah. That, I mean, there's no otherwise... I mean, why should there suddenly be so much flooding? It isn't like we've had heavy precipitation. I mean, some of these years we have, but it just sounds like the level of the waters being kept higher because that benefits shipping interests in the St. Lawrence, in Montreal, and and along that whole St. Lawrence Seaway. That's a tremendous commercial highway between the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean. And so I think there's been a little bit of success in, in getting this Plan 14 out into the open because until a couple of years ago, nobody even knew there was such a thing. No one knew there was an Ontario-St. Lawrence board, whatever it is they're called, you know, mm-hmm. the IJC, the International Joint Commission. No, nobody knew any of this stuff until yeah. the floods hit, and then they start untangling it and find out, uh, okay, the, the interests of big money over the interests of the people yet again. It is interesting. And it's, not, it's one of those scenarios where I, I believe the last I had heard, um, the lake levels were at basically as high as they ever have been for this time of year. Right, um, higher than they were yeah. last year and in 2017 when they had all that damage. So, And then the other part of the issue, we talked about this once before, is if this is the new normal, we probably need to rethink our ideas about development near bodies of water. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I was up in Sodus uh, last summer, Sodus Bay, and mm-hmm. I saw real estate development going in. Right on the water. <laughs> Everybody wants to be on the water, and that's yeah. great until your 75-foot lawn out to the water becomes a 7-foot lawn out to the water. Yeah. Uh, you know, the people up on the bluffs where they've had the, the cliffs just completely erode. Oh, yeah. And now it's this far, you know, from their front door to the edge of the cliff. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. Uh, another topic that we got an update on that actually we haven't talked about since last fall um, so if you recall, there was a legal battle over a severely autistic child from Yates County who did not have his vaccines and was thereby when the new vaccine rules for education and for schools went into effect, was not able to go back to his school in Monroe County. Um, we have a new court date, which is, I believe, at the end of the month. Um, and then we have, at the same time, a decision to allow the child to go back to school, apparently, uh, in the short term. This is really interesting to me because this is one of those this is one of the stories that even I forgot about. And here we are, like eight months later, 
And in theory, the child is now eight months behind because they couldn't just... And I realize that vaccines are a very touchy subject for a lot of people. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about this very unique situation, there needs, no matter what law we're talking about, no matter what regulation we're talking about, no matter what the the thing is that the, the governor and the state is trying to implement in terms of good policy, you have to be able to wiggle inside of that policy. It can't be so hardline that you're you're refusing to acknowledge that there are going to be exceptions in in various ways and well like i'm just sitting here thinking to myself god this kid is now eight months behind and what if what has the family been doing since they've been fighting a legal battle like this is just not an ideal situation right (laughs) i mean as you say it gets to the whole autism and vaccine topic my understanding is because this came up in a conversation i had with somebody the other day and i'd forgotten about it too uh, I, I may not be correct, but I think I am on this, is that the child had a medical exemption mm-hmm. from a doctor uh, saying that he did not need to get vaccinated. Now, you know, do vaccines cause autism? The experts seem to say no. Uh, I can accept that. I also don't trust the pharmaceutical industry as far as I can throw them, because frankly, I think they peddle a lot of stuff that they know is bad for us and sell it to us anyway. You know, if it was some other industry with a better record, I might give them the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, I always I have a saying that I use that that rules are not a substitute for good judgment. It seems like good judgment in this particular case would have been to say, "This child has an exemption. Let's let him go to school." And we're also uh, I'm, I don't want to get too off deep in the weeds here, but we're getting more and more vaccines added to the must-have list, the HPV vaccine, which I have all sorts of opinions about that we can have for another discussion. But, you know, it's getting to the point now where there's going to be a longer and longer list of things mandated of parents to do before their children can go to school. It's more and more control. Uh, Someone once wrote that every time a law is passed, control of something is taken away from the people and given to the government. Mm-hmm. That seems to kind of be the case here. Yeah. Uh, one quick follow-up before we get into questions here from uh, one of the other com- one of the other uh, conversations we we're having here. Uh, Mr. Oliver Woods wrote on YouTube, uh, you can't have opposing dynamics in the economies of the area, dumps versus tourism, boosting local cuisine versus city and county DWI business, etc. Hard luck. So that's kind of the and and it's interesting because that is definitely the sentiment that I get from a certain a certain part of uh, a certain part of the political uh, folks who who talk about this and say you know you can't pass you know as an example we talked about lowering the DWI rate or the lowering the BAC rate uh, from point zero eight to point zero five which is currently being debated to some degree in Albany. Um, you can't dump all of this money into the the wine and beer craft tourism industry here in the Finger Lakes and then simultaneously lower that without doing something, without having another sort of response and reaction in terms of spending into the the transportation issues that these communities have in the rural parts of the Finger Lakes. It's this kind of like competing ideologies back and forth where like, you want to do the moral, the the right thing, or that's what it seems like lawmakers are trying to do. But at the same time, you're creating all of these these diversions where 
you know, are we doing this or are we doing that? Is this well, the reason or? I understand that sentiment. I don't know that I, I really agree. I mean, I think that if they build a sludge plant in Butler, I don't think that's going to stop anybody from coming to convention days in Seneca Falls. They don't even know that Butler's there. And, and frankly, you know, Butler and, and that part of Wayne County isn't a huge tourism area right. as such. And, and it's the same thing. I mean, I'm not in favor of lowering the DWI limit. We talked about that. But I don't think it's it has to necessarily be one or the other. I mean, you, I don't think you have to say, well, if we're going to have a wine industry, then anybody can be able to drink and drive or drink and do anything. I mean, I think the people in favor of lowering the limit would say, we're looking after public safety, have all the wine you want, but have it at home. Or if you're going to go to the restaurant and have it, especially today, call Uber, call Lyft, call... I mean, most bars now will make arrangements for you to get a ride home. I mean, it's it's not... It's, it's much less difficult than it used to be to go consume alcohol at a premise and then get a ride home if you want it. But the problem, I think, and we talked about it at length the last time uh, we did the show a couple of weeks ago, where, you know, is the limit being lowered based on good science and good data, or is it being lowered right. based and, on something else? And yeah, if it's I don't that something it else, I, I mean, that's where I feel like the whole becomes this, you know, you have these two things, and if you're making a bad decision over here that affects the thing over here, is that a, it's it's a... It's a bigger loss, it seems. Right. I, I think it, it's two separate arguments. I mean, the the I, I agree. I don't think the process being used to try to lower the limit is really about public safety and science. I think it's about political pressure. But, again, I, I don't think it, it has to be a, a one thing or the other. I mean, you can't – I don't think you can say we're a tourism area, therefore we want nothing in our entire Finger Lakes area that isn't tourism friendly. I mean – you know, everybody wants tourism. So does that mean we can build no factories? We can build no landfills? We can build no processing plants of any kind anywhere that remotely calls itself a tourism area? I don't think you can go that far. So now we've got all these questions to wade through. Uh, they, they sh- we should be able to get through them pretty quickly. Um, question number one comes from Alex in Geneva. Uh, they ask, uh, what do you guys think about the proposal in Geneva to move to two meetings per month? Is it a good idea or is it misguided? Ted, you and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, my personal view is that it's a good idea anytime we can get more government, more action, more conversation about issues. It's probably a good thing. My reservation would be how how do you format that second meeting? And that seems to be the question, the bigger question that Geneva City Council was wrestling with when they first introduced this idea. What would that second meeting be right. made up of? I think if you go from one two-hour meeting to two two-hour meetings, you haven't really accomplished anything. I think if the second meeting is focused more around public input, and it's, you know, we've talked about this. The You want to encourage public input. You want to encourage transparency in government. But if you're a city councilor, you also don't want to sit there listening to the same crank talk about the same issue that he's brought up at every meeting for the last 57 weeks in a row. So I don't know how you balance those interests. You know, is there such a thing as limiting comment and saying, okay, you've made your point. We don't want to hear you complain about the same thing you complain about every week. Does it improve engagement, I guess, would be the big question in my mind. Um, Are you going to have two meetings a month instead of one meeting a month where you get maybe 15 people who show up to watch 
And, you know, is that an improvement per se? And maybe that would be an argument against it if you're not going to see a significant increase in turnout to those meetings and a significant increase in engagement at those meetings. Maybe then it would be uh, a little bit misguided. But I do think it's interesting. Like, you know, I, I raised uh, Auburn as an example where they meet every week. You know, that I think to a lot of people would just be shocking. I, th- I think it's surprising. I, you know, it's surprising that a city that small holds a city council meeting that often. But um, it also seems like they're pretty efficient in the way they do it, that their meetings aren't very long. They pretty much get their business done. And it gives you more time to react to things, too, when you don't have to wait a month. If something comes up two days after the meeting, you don't have to wait a whole month for it to be on the next agenda. It's on the agenda that next week. So, yeah, it all comes down to how it's run. And whether that encourages more participation, I don't know. That's I mean, we've talked about that, uh, again, when Jackie's been here a lot, about the lack of participation from the citizenry, that they just don't seem to be to want to be bothered anymore to be engaged with their government. They just want someone else to do it. And uh, another question that came up uh, has to do with the changes in discovery and bail reform. Um, it seems like there are a few counties, and this is the background before I read the question, there are a few counties that we've reported on, uh, the Cuga County and Seneca County as examples, um, have sort of been wrestling with the idea of adding different types of staff because of the changes, whether it be bail reform or whether it be the discovery changes. Uh, and Alicia wrote in to, to ask us, since bail reform and discovery changes have created more work for law enforcement at all levels, should additional positions be funded and not debated? And that's interesting because, and this is my own personal take on this, it, it, I, I thought back to the most recent uh, meeting of the Seneca County Board of Supervisors where they heard about this issue directly. They, they heard from the judges who basically said, give us one part-time clerk to help us process stuff, documents that are necessary, that are legally mandated. And the reception was lukewarm to maybe a little bit of resentment. Um, and the resentment wasn't aimed at the judges, even though the judges are the ones who have to deal with the problem. It was aimed at the state for mandating the changes, which have resulted in more work in this idea that they maybe should wait to see if Albany was going to change the policy to some degree or if they would fund the position in some way, shape or form, which when you go back to it and you're talking about one one part time position that's worth maybe twenty, twenty five, thirty, forty thousand dollars, to me, it doesn't really seem to align like you're arguing about something so petty and so small. Even if you feel like you have this fundamental uh, rub with the state and saying, hey, we shouldn't have to pay for this. You should because you laid out these rules. It doesn't change the fact that the work still needs to be done. I'd like, I'd love to get more factual information on what the <coughs> actual ramifications of this have been. Most of the argument around the whole criminal justice reform has centered around people being let go and committing second or third or subsequent mm-hmm. offenses. Um, to which I say people created second and third offenses before we had this reform. So, you know, is anybody tracking how many of these people that we're hearing about, would they have gotten out on bail anyway? If they would have gotten out on bail anyway, then it doesn't really matter. The other thing, that, and I, I've had a tough time, I asked Sheriff Henderson in Ontario County, I said, if all these people are being let go, wouldn't that mean 
a pretty significant decrease in your jail population, and could you not shift resources from that to these other things? And he said there really hasn't been much change in the jail population. To which my next question is, well, if there hasn't, then what's all the fuss about? About I mean, it, so if there's not a reduction in the jail population, then who are all these people that we're being told would have been in jail before that are free to run loose across the land now? There's just all these loose ends and not a lot of good, hard, factual information on what the real ramifications have been. It's interesting because this was the first... So at this meeting a couple weeks ago, this was the first time that I that I seemed to hear hard data. And it wasn't in... It, it focused much less on bail reform and focused much more on the discovery law changes. Right, which is the part that hasn't really been discussed as much, right? It, there, they there's have now... seen... They're saying there's a significant uptick in the number of arraignments that they've had to... Under this new process that they've had to... Uh, fulfill already this year and it's almost it's almost getting towards like a two-to-one margin and thereby has created more work because there are more forms and when you introduce things like uh, uh, restraining orders and court orders and things like that it really like complicates and lengthens the process well and it all has to be done more quickly processed. now that's the other part you know the evidence yeah. discovery the evidence needs to be turned over to the defendant's team yeah. much more quickly and so yes I, I'm sure that's going to create a workload and I can't recall what county it was but uh, one county in the region had already used up essentially all of its bandwidth because of the discovery changes. So they were actually having to, to expand. And it might have been one of the smaller counties in, in going towards the southern tier, maybe Schuyler or um, uh, maybe Stu Ben. I'm not sure. But they had actually had to invest in more resources so that they could accommodate all of the, the data and all of the 911 calls and everything like that. They were having to store that they hadn't had to store before. So those are sort of, I guess, like you said, the unintended costs that are that are coming along that I think do have to be pretty actively engaged with by local officials. And I, I'm, I'm not really sure you have time if you're, you're in Seneca County or if you're in Cuga County or if you're in any of these places to sort of sit back and take the approach of, well, we'll just wait and see how it all works out. That's fine until you're getting sued because something went wrong right. and because someone was, you know, and... That just isn't the situation. It's not how a lot of these these counties should be trying to operate. Well, and like so many things coming out of Albany, it, it should have been better thought out before it was rolled out in the first place. Yeah, and it's interesting because this actually piggybacks right into another question that we had gotten from uh, Alan, it looks like. Uh, what are your thoughts so far on what we know about the Medicaid cost-cutting efforts that the governor has handed down? County officials are saying it's going to hurt them. Uh, the, the whole philosophy is, I suppose, as much as I've been able to see thus far, that they will have to stay under what the state sees as a normal growth rate, which I believe is about 3%, and they will also have to stay under the property tax cap and then the 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 state will then reimburse x amount of the increase or they will cover the increase but if you violate that um you're on your own you're paying for your foot in the bill for the whole increase entirely um what we're early in this process still but sort of responding to that question is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Is this a bad way to be approaching this? For me, it seems like if the state's creating the system and mandating the rules, that the counties should kind of be in a hold harmless situation where they're not liable for what the cost increases are if they're just basically following following the outline. 
One would think it's just one part of a very broken healthcare system in America, but when Democratic candidates bring up the idea of <laughs> Medicare for all or single payer or adopting things similar to what we have all around the world, it gets shot down. The uh, I don't have the most recent figures, but the last I knew, health care per capita in the United States was somewhere around to ten to twelve thousand dollars a year. Total payments, what we pay to doctors, to insurance companies, to Medicare, Medicaid, whatever. In almost every other developed nation on earth, that figure is somewhere around four or five thousand dollars. So somehow everybody else on earth has figured out how to deliver quality health care to the residents for a fraction of what we do. There's a lot of reasons why I talked about drug companies. I mean, turn on your TV, especially if you watch you know, watch a Matlock rerun. And you're going to see nothing but ads for Medicare Part D supplements and for this drug and that drug and this drug and that drug. We're an unhealthy nation. We don't eat well. We don't exercise. It's, so it's a piece of a bigger problem. But yeah, once again, you've got the state mandating what lower governmental levels have to do and saying, oh, it's going to cost you a lot more. Too bad. That's on you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because... It seems to be the the state just kind of scapegoating the counties in terms of, and I, I actually plan on having a conversation uh, with with some folks from Wayne County uh, on the show to sort of dive into this issue and, and work out the X's and O's of how it all how it would all work. Um, one thing that we do have time to get to that I wanted to just touch on quickly, instead of sending a question, um, one individual who was using a burner email account, uh, so I don't have a name, uh, sent this story which I printed out. Um, it, it basically looks at home ownership and renter statistics. So uh, renting, if, if you hadn't followed the trend or, or gotten the hook, renters, they're making up more and more of the, the household population. Um, that said, home ownership is sort of declining. It's sort of at a 64-37 split right now. Um, the question that this person threw along with it was, why aren't more people buying homes. And I feel like this is a topic that we've talked about a bunch of times before, um, but it's interesting because backed up with the data that they sent across, it's pretty clear. Like there is, depending on where you are, there is an instability in the economy. And this is, this is my take. Um, there's an instability in the economy. There's uncertainty for a lot of folks who are coming out of college who would ordinarily be coming out of high school, college, entering the workforce who would ordinarily be home buyers. You then couple that with an incredibly competitive uh, housing market. In the, I mean, we're talking, you know, I have, I have a, a friend who is looking to buy a home in sort of the Canandaigua, Victor, Farmington area. And what they're wow. seeing is... is <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, they're they're seeing prices that are through the roof. And then, you know, you look at where a place where I live in Rochester, you're seeing a, a housing market that literally competes with, with San Francisco at this point in terms of how little is available and how expensive um, the, the, the properties are that are coming up. And the hoops that some folks are jumping through to actually buy these properties when they come up, they're waiving, uh, they're waiving home inspections, they're paying 20, 30% over market value, and all because they're chasing this thing that I think from, you know, from the, the pending 30-year-old's 
perspective just isn't that big a deal anymore. Owning a home just isn't, it isn't the thing that 20 and 30 somethings are chasing anymore. I'm like, and that is a generational change, I think. I absolutely, that's, I think that's the biggest factor is that young people, because home ownership is always sort of, you know, the sign of putting down roots that we're going to be here for a while. And I think young people don't feel like they can be secure that they're going to be there. They don't, they don't think their job's going to be there in 20 years. They're not sure it's going to be there in five years. And we have this increasingly, you know, we talked about this a, a few visits back. Increasingly, it's a part-time, 30 to 35-hour, no benefits, uh, flexible scheduling where they use software to figure out demand. And so you might have Tuesday off this week and Wednesday off next week and no set schedule. I think it is a generational change. And and also, I think, yeah, I think there's a change in the eye. It's like, why do I need to own a home? I mean, one of the biggest reasons is for some price stability. Rents keep going up and up and up. You get a 30-year mortgage, that mortgage is going to stay the same. Taxes go up. I mean, my mortgage payment is $200 a month more than it was when I started, primarily due to taxes and insurance. So that's the one factor. And then the other factor is the barrier to entry that is represented by down payment. I was very fortunate when I bought my house, I never owned a home until I came to New York, and I don't even know if they still have the program, but the Sunny May program, uh, through certain banks, the state would subsidize, basically, the down payment. So instead of the 20%, or in some cases you can get by with 10, my down payment was something like 4%, which I could afford. Also... My family, our particular quirks were that we want we don't mind living in a rural kind of outpost away from work. So we found a place in Rushville that cost much less than anybody you know that that cost a fifth of what it's going to cost you to get a house in Victor or Farmington. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I think your your first point is the bigger one. I just think there's a generational shift in the whole attitude of home ownership brought on by all these kind of economic insecurities. It's interesting because there's no, like, there's not a, um, it's not like this is something that some people who are concerned about it can fix it or change it. Because I, the other fundamental issue I see is like in a lot of these communities, there isn't, um, there isn't new housing coming in. There isn't new, you know, there aren't things coming in to, to make this situation better. There, are, well, there isn't new it. housing in a lot of these communities. There hasn't been new housing in Seneca County, as an example, in a very long time. Well, so. and it's actually going the other way. I, I mean, I've seen in my own town in Rushville, there are a number of properties in our neighborhood that used to be homeowner-occupied places that are now rental. I, I mean, more and more people are just saying, you know, I'm just going to rent this out and it's much easier, I think, when you're a landlord to skimp on maintenance and things. Tenants, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? Complain, and then you get thrown out. So it's, I think it is. I, I don't know that it's a, a solvable problem as much as it is we have to take a different look at what constitutes housing in the generations to come. 
That is for sure. And that is all the time we have for today. Ted, we're folks hearing you Monday through Friday. I just want to say one thing is there's a monitor facing me today, and I never realized how frightening I look on these, these appearances. There's a reason I'm on radio. It's the Finger Lakes Morning News on 95.9 and 1240 WGVA in Geneva and on 98.1 and 1590 WAUB in Auburn, Monday through Friday, 530 to 9 a.m. All right. Check out Ted weekday mornings on Finger Lakes News Radio. We will be back next week here on FingerLakes1.com. Until then, hit subscribe, and if you're following us on YouTube, and, of course, uh, rate the show five stars if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you later, guys.